0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohn is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask you that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Churchwell, Director of Programs and Education at the Acton Institute and Contributing Editor here at Acton, Emily Zanotti. Today, we'll be talking about Lent, its increasing ecumenical practice, the reason for the season, and the perils and promise of Lent us during this season of repentance. We'll also be talking about minerals, both rare earth ones recently discovered in Wyoming, and all the sand that Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, is going to need for those $7 trillion in computer chips. But first, however, I want to begin our discussion in the Russian Arctic, where late last week in penal colony FKUIK3 Russian opposition activist and political prisoner Alexei Navalny died while serving a 19-year prison sentence. The exact cause of death has not been officially revealed. As of this recording, Navalny was 47 years old. The BBC reports Navalny was last seen only one day before his death, looking well and laughing during a court hearing via video link. Friends, relatives, and much of the international community suspects foul play and not without reason. Navalny was one of President Vladimir Putin's harshest critics. He was disqualified from running against Putin in 2018 due to prior criminal conviction widely considered to have been politically motivated. Navalny had been previously assaulted by an unknown assailant in 2017 in the eyes with a green disinfectant chemical but was also poisoned with a nerve agent uh, in 2020 after returning to Russia from Germany, where he received successful treatment for that nerve agent in January of 2021. He was arrested and remained, has remained prisoner until his death uh, last week. I guess the first question I want to open up is, as we're thinking through this um, again, no cause of death has been officially released. Everything points to this being uh, strange, if not, uh, you know, uh, a sort of political assassination. How can and should the international community respond, especially in an environment where, like, a lot of the international community is kind of already maxed out on the sort of diplomatic sanctions, the sort of – you know, isolation in terms of trade because of the the ongoing war in the Ukraine. Um, there's not really a lot of leverage that I see for, for Western democracies to exert now. And I'm, I'm wondering how you both see this.
1: Well, I think there was a cause of death listed and it was called sudden death syndrome. So that doesn't really raise any questions (laughs) (laughs) um sudden adult onset death um so it is an interesting scenario not that navalny never predicted that this would happen i think he knew that this was going to happen as soon as he uh was convicted in a russian court um I don't know if there's that much that can be done. We all know precisely what the plan is here. And it does seem that Putin went on something of a public relations offensive for about two weeks ahead. He gave an interview to Tucker Carlson. Um, there were a number of demonstrations of how well uh, Russia is doing right now and in, in spite of the sanctions that were leveraged on them. Um, Ukraine does seem to be struggling in its battle against to maintain its territory. So this is a fraught time for this to happen. And Putin clearly thought that this was a good opportunity to take care of a political dissident while the rest of the world is involved in the Middle East, involved in the war between Israel and Hamas. Um, and it does raise a lot of questions about what can be done because it doesn't appear that much of the sanctions are working. The United States is still, uh, in a controversy over whether to continue to fund the war in Iran. Arra- uh, I'm sorry, in Ukraine. Um, uh, he's, he's trying to put the international community in a position that we certainly have put ourselves in, which is that we don't really know what to do there because We are looking at the potential of a war on two fronts. um, And Biden does not look particularly strong at the moment.
0: Yeah. One of the the challenges with dealing with authoritarian regimes is how do you preserve leverage in a situation where in a lot of ways, the United States has already
2: gone all in. Um, Dan, what, what do you what do you make of this? Well, it just seems <clears throat> obvious that, you know, I mean, a lot of governments over the past few days have come out and just, um, whether they're foreign ministers or others, just saying literally that, you know, we knew this was going to happen. This, this is obviously something is going on here, especially just three, what is it, three or four weeks before the Russian election, the timing, you know, there, there's issues with timing, Um, but even, uh, but then you have somebody like the China, um, Chinese, uh, premier of on Foreign Relations he you know this is just an internal matter we don't have any comment you know and it so you look at most of the Western countries are like this is obviously a problem for any kind of Democratic or you know this election process is a sham people made fun of um, Tucker Carlson rightly so and so you know a lot of criticism but it, it, it is interesting when Putin went back you know what it was 800 years and began to talk about the yeah. history of the you know they the Russian you know People really do take their history extremely seriously, and they do go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in these oral traditions. And so, I I think that this is just another long line of um, sad political commentary coming out of um, coming out of Russia. But it's obvious that he he predicted his death in multiple occasions, you know, in multiple uh, uh, mediums, and he expected to do so. They they. The medical, all the medical information coming out. You know, he received you know good medical care, and the the, the hospital uh, sent an ambulance within seven minutes, and you know they they did all the all this. You have all this very minute detail, but then they won't release how he died. Like, yeah. it, how do you get all this this information, and then not this a very obvious one? So it, uh, yeah, I think obviously the Western reaction. I, I don't think we can do anything about it. We we just recognize it for what it is, and and begin to talk about it from there. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, to some extent, it's just a matter of recognizing that Russia is interested in becoming something of a dictatorship again. Um, one thing that we aren't acknowledging, you know, we, we are still sort of, I think, in a, in a way that is very convenient for the West to pretend or at least not say that we know what's happening in Russia. Um, but Russia is becoming authoritarian or is authoritarian uh, similar to the way that China is authoritarian we see a lot of uh, confrontation that happens sort of on a diplomatic level between the United States and Russia and the United States and China and we have a lot of proxy wars proxy conflicts things in Syria things in Lebanon um you're looking at a period of time in the world where we really are pulling back from acknowledging a lot of it just because we know what the consequence of acknowledging it is. And it's interesting, especially in light of what happened with Tucker Carlson, that like, basically as soon as Carlson was on a plane, after he had released all of these videos of how wonderful the subway systems were and how wonderful the high-end grocery stores are, um, he lands in Dubai and there's a political dissident that has been... Uh, Essentially, we can assume probably executed. And then in the wake of that, we do have priests being arrested. Um, Orthodox priests who wanted to offer masses for Navalny have now been arrested. Uh, More than 200 people have been arrested at morning services. Um, There is a very visual crackdown that's happening. Um, So we do kind of get a sense of this being a PR or a public relations or communication strategy Um, designed to show that Putin is not just in control, but he is in control of his own people. And whatever ground we're fighting him on, whether it's diplomatic, whether it's Syria, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's in exercises in the sea, the uh, Yellow Sea, that That he means business and and he's trying to show who he is just weeks before this election. Um, And he may very well. I mean, I I assume he's going to be reelected and that becomes a well, the Russian people want this. Um, So there's a lot of setup here that we're looking at. What do we know? What happens down the road? You know, two or three or four weeks from now, it's a, it's an interesting question.
0: Yeah. The Russian elections are, are curious because those the parties that are allowed to exist are those that are more extreme than Vladimir Putin. The the Communist Party still exists. They're the second largest party. Uh, They are as horrible as they have ever been. And then there is an ultra-nationalist party that's, you know, founder, was very interested in having Alaska back. So, but that itself is sort of manufactured. People like Navalny are disqualified from running so that you can't see what the support for those sort of alternatives will be. Dan alluded to the sort of ideological complexion of this. And I think this is something that Americans don't understand. And there was a a recent uh, piece in the New York Review of Books that reviewed a couple of different books, among them one book by Alexander Duggan, who's one of uh, the sort of, Big political theorists behind this concept of Eurasianism, which, which many people think is sort of the animating ideology behind the Russian regime and we'll include a, a link to that uh, lengthy review in the show notes and it gets into a lot of this sort of thing. One of the other things that you've both touched upon with this that I think is really, really important is there are a lot of voices on the extremes of both the political left and the political right here in the United States, which are highly sympathetic to Russia. From the political left, they view them as sort of a vanguard of sort of an anti-colonial project uh, against the sort of, quote-unquote, American empire. And from the right, you have some people who have some degree of affection for, uh, in spite of routine arrests of people like priests uh, that Emily mentioned that, you know, Russia does try to cultivate this image, at least, as sort of like a bastion of Christian civilization, of a sort of like social conservative alternative to um, what 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 is often depicted as a, as a decadent European Union in Russian propaganda. How do we as American citizens negotiate other American citizens that seem— really open to these sorts of arguments?
1: It seems like a Twitter battle. I want to say that what is happening on Twitter is not what is happening on real life. I hope that that's not the case. Um, but we do see a lot of opposition, especially to the war in Ukraine and funding the war in Ukraine, um, then kind of go into sort of this Russian propaganda, this sort of proto-pagan, neo-pagan might makes right, even a, a sort of Christian nationalism. It's an assumption that it's a Christian nationalism, but really it's not. It's quite communist, um, quite fascist. I, there is there is this assumption on the part of Americans that the media is not reporting sort of the war in Ukraine and the objectives of the Russian government fairly. Um, and I think to some extent, the media has done that job themselves they've sort of undermined their credibility um but to extract extrapolate from that that the war is not recorded accurately is a little bit different um battling it is sort of a visual aspect you know trying to show that Navalny really did follow this pattern that what has been given to us by tucker carlson isn't necessarily 100 percent of
2: of the well, what I find interesting too is is back to the, this history. The the Russians, you know, we, we it was kind of funny. People There are a lot of memes and jokes about how far back Putin went. Yeah, But on the flip side, we don't have an, a memory. Well, our memory is very short. I mean, we don't remember what Stalingrad was like in World War II, like how the Russians were able to throw so many bodies at, like, just how they view their people, how they view their moment. And so we joke on one end, they're long institutional and and, and you know political memory uh, ours is very very short in america and yeah. in the west sometimes and in particular american i'm i'm talking about and so i i think a lot of people are are just coming at this especially younger people with a very short memory a lack of historical context and um, I mean we, we all woke up this morning with you know one of the Ukraine uh, the battlefields in Ukraine um, in the Donetsk province um, the Russians were able to take back and the Ukraine you know army is pulling back this morning and it, it's largely seen as a defeat but it they're able just to throw hundreds and hundreds and thousands of men at this they, they empty their prisons and then here you have Navalny in prison and, and one thing I mean he's a 47 year old man. Who has been injured, you know, significantly, and some of the the it's, it's hard to get exact numbers, but it seems like he's spent over 300 days in solitary confinement near the Arctic. So, you know, it, I mean, the dude he could have just died, yeah. because of the rough nature of the penal colony where he's at. And so, I mean, it's just it's just really hard to know. The 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 idea of understanding and knowing what happened, I think that even that using that kind of language. In dealing with Russian propaganda, et cetera, it's just hard to know. And you had this problem. You saw this in, in
0: in Tucker Carlson's face during the interview with Vladimir Putin. Is when Putin is giving these long historical arguments, this is something that Tucker Carlson, who has been—I I don't watch a lot of Tucker, but he has been accused of, of of being one of these folks that that oftentimes buys the Russian propaganda. And he very clearly has not been listening to these sorts of arguments. And these were very clearly new to him. And I think the sort of arguments, you know, that, that both the extremes of the American left and right, that this is about a sort of retaliatory measure from from NATO expansion, this sort of stuff is this is not no, no, no like, like the sort of Eurasian ideology is that Ukraine is fake and shouldn't exist, that um, that it doesn't have any sort of nationhood and thus has no claim to any sort of political legitimacy. Um, I want to turn now um, from sort of international politics to sort of economic developments, which um, have the potential to have sort of world-transforming consequences. And the first is in the great state of Wyoming, where. 2.34 2.34 metric tons of rare earth elements have been recently discovered. Uh, these rare earth minerals are used in the manufacture of computer chips, smartphones, and aircraft engines. Uh, writing for the Wall Street Journal historic historian Michael. Oslin writes that this, quote, signals the beginning of a new era in competition for raw materials that power the global economy. If wisely exploited, this find estimated to be the richest in the world will give the United States an unparalleled economic and geopolitical edge against China and Russia for the foreseeable future. This is, of course, unless OpenAI's Sam Altman gobbles them all up first. Uh, Keech Haggy and Asa Fitch, also in the Wall Street Journal, different story, right, about this, saying, Sam Altman was already trying to lead the development of human-level artificial intelligence. Now he has another great ambition, raising trillions of dollars to reshape the global semiconductor industry. The OpenAI chief executive officer is in talks with investors, including the United Arab Emirates government, to raise funds for a widely ambitious tech initiative that would boost the world's chip-building capacity, expand its ability to power AI, among other things, and cost Several trillion dollars, according to people familiar with the matter, the project could require raising as much as five to seven trillion dollars, one person said. This is interesting on, on all sorts of levels because it brings together a lot of different concerns. Uh, Ross Emmett, uh, economic historian, extraordinary, and r- longtime uh, friend of the Acton Institute, uh, likes to say that all of life is economic, but not all of econ, uh, but But economics is not all of life. Um, These raw earth minerals are essential to the function of modern civilization as we know it. They are economic goods as such, all economic laws and constraints apply. But they're also necessary for national security and they power technologies that are not without their critics. And I think there's some legitimate caution and concern about artificial intelligence. Emily, what do you make of this puzzle?
1: This is actually really interesting and that it gets into every aspect of political theory, including climate change, because we are very concerned about China and Russia minting or uh, strip mining these minerals because of the environmental impact. But then it becomes a national security issue. So where our government is saying we want to cut down on the number of, say, gas-powered vehicles, we need to have electric vehicles, we need to have these gadgets and gizmos, Uh, when we do that, we are relying on places like China and their largesse and their ability to mine these minerals, um, and we are giving them power from a national security standpoint so that they could stand in our way. But then, of course, we become <laughs> the global problem. Um, we become the ones who are strip mining this. We are we are owning that environmental impact. Um, but from an economic perspective, then we also need this. This is where technology is going. We're moving away from a sort of a fossil fuel model to a chip model um this is this is a a lot to unpack quite honestly and when you think that we are sitting here now with a piece of the puzzle that should give us the upper hand and we are now in an ethical quandary do we take it um but of course then of course you know we have tech bros who want to get in between all of it and make a lot of money so to me, it's a puzzle that is far beyond my pay grade. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, in terms of the economics of the home front, I can't look at this and go anything but this is a global problem that has to be sold us solved on a global level, um, and we just don't have that kind of global connection.
0: Yeah, uh, one of the things before the program, Dan and I were talking about where this find happened is not too far from where Dan grew up. Um, and when you mentioned the uh, environmental impacts, Dan, um, I mean, I, I want your thoughts on all of this. But you, but you particularly, you've spent some time in this area where oh, these yeah. finds have been made, and, and could you just kind of paint a picture for the audience as to as to what's there, or rather, almost what's not there?
2: Right. Well, well, Wheatland is uh, an hour north of Cheyenne, Wyoming, on the t- on I twenty five. And but it, the the absolute desolation. People don't really. It, it's beautiful. I grew up in the Black Hills of South Dakota, the very you know western edge of South Dakota, which butts right up into this Wheatland Upland. It seems like that corridor between Wheatland and Upland is where a lot of these rare earth minerals are being mined or, or found, at least uh, before they start mining. But if you, if you realize, I mean, how many mining claims just in the Wheatland area? There are sixty three hundred acres. And when you talk about that in any kind of, you know, people have a hard time. That's a small section of land in 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 that expanse, but it it is so wild, um, and it's largely a agrar- It's largely agriculture or just barren. It, it's just it's just some of the most um, deserted areas of the world, and I, I find it very very beautiful, but. Like Emily stated, the environmental impact I think is what's going to be very interesting. The the company that found this is actually an Australian company. They're doing business in America as an American subsidiary, right? But it's Australian in its um, business unit and – Trying to figure out how they work on the combination of federal land, state land, private land, you know, the litigation – you know, how this all works itself out I think is going to be fascinating. In fact, in several other articles, they talk that the market isn't even ready – Oh yeah, for the 2.34 billion metric tons of this. It would boost America to the number 1. They say as of right now it's the fifth largest, but if this new if these new numbers stand, it will be the largest find in rare earth metals in in the world. And so we'll be a competitor, but that means the market's not even ready for all of it coming. So they have to figure out how to stage it so that they won't blow out the market by volume.
0: Yeah. We're having this problem right now with lithium, uh, the lithium market that people were very worried about. People were worried about, you know, are we going to be able to make this electric car transition because there's only so much lithium in the world? Well, it turns out if lithium gets expensive, people start looking for lithium and they find it. Um, and we're we're having the same thing with rare earth mineral, minerals right now.
1: And you have to consider the impact that other countries will have in the race to mine this. So one of the things about fossil fuels that we see kind of in the late stage of fossil fuel, um, assuming we're in a late stage of fossil fuel, I don't quite know. But so the tar sands in Alberta are a great example of this. Um, Typically, the United States and the Middle East have sort of had the um, market cornered on fossil fuels and oil. uh, And then it was found in the tar sands in Alberta. Well, somebody has to pull that, that fossil fuel up. Somebody has to transport that fossil fuel. So, we had all of these discussions in the United States over things like the Keystone Pipeline, um, all of these pipelines that run from the tar sands all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, where then we could ship it. Um, When we decided that we did not necessarily want those pipelines going across or that information and that fossil fuel flowing through those pipelines, China came in, said, we actually can get our boats up to, you know, British Columbia, pipe it that way. China ended up um, winning that battle. So you actually are dealing with not just who is going to own this, but who is going to mine it, who is going to ship it, who is going to manufacture it, who's going to refine it. Um, this becomes a, a global <laughs> economic problem. Um it's, it's, you know, the the finding the golden ticket in your Willy Wonka bar and then dealing with Willy Wonka, right? You have this whole deal, this whole situation that seems great, but you may not want to find that in your backyard. So this is going to be a really interesting development. Um, Sam Altman may or may not uh, factor into it, um, but there is also a capitalistic approach to it that says, you know, maybe the person who has the most experience and has the most money here should be the one to do it just because we don't want prospectors from China and companies that do business with places like China or Russia coming in and handling this. So it should be very interesting once we start to get an idea of exactly how much is in there and how quickly we can pull it out.
0: Yeah, and Sam Altman figures into this picture because p- part of what this is a staggering amount of money that he wants to raise. This the 6 to 7 trillion dollars is 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 inconceivable by me. Like I like you, you put the digits in your calculator sometime and
2: just like you know, especially focused on one sector.
0: Yeah, been focused yeah. on one sector. But there is an acute part, – part of the reason that he wants this sort of massive investment is that we do already have – issues with chip shortages and supply chain issues and the United States President Biden signed the CHIPS Act to try to already sort of stimulate national production of this. There's concern about a lot of chip making capacity being located in China right now. So there's, there's, there was national security interest behind the CHIPS Act. And there's also just generally a global demand for these sorts of things. The sort of chips, uh, that, you know, you're getting you're getting chips in cars. You know, we we've had chips in cars for a long, long time now, but this is becoming right. ubiquitous. But
2: it's the, it's the volume of GPUs, the the graphic processing units that are going to. These are the new ch, the chips that are going to um, really revolutionize all the Internet of Things. All of the you know the, the you see how many chips um, are embedded in all kinds of everyday appliances yep. now. It said there's chips now, That the proliferation of those chips. I mean, just this morning, um, they announced one of the first grants out of the Chips Act is a $1.5 billion grant to global foundries in New York yeah. to, to build out these new plants in America. And, and the majority of the chip plants are um, in Taiwan and other places as well. And uh, the NVIDIA... President and CEO um, Jensen Huang, he mentioned, you know, just just this last week at the same conference that he sees the GPU growth. That the reason Nvidia has exploded in value is because their chips. They've figured out a way that their GPUs can work across all spectrums yeah. and across all companies. And their GPU, and and they're looking to raise um, billions and billions of dollars as well. But that the trillion dollar once when, when you hit that trillion yeah. dollar number, I mean, it just seems fantastical.
1: But when you think about it, every new appliance so I live in a hundred year old farmhouse here in Nashville with brand new appliances. Every appliance that I have now has a chip in it. So my washer texts me when it's done, my dryer texts me when it's done. I have a 1933 Pilcro radio and it has a Bluetooth built into it now. You have your TV that you can control from your phone. You have, you know, someday, an EMP is going to absolutely take me out. But until then, um, until then, <laughs> everything in my house is connected. Mm-hmm. My dishwasher, my refrigerator, um, everything in my house is connected on a home board and through apps on my phone and There's just this increasing need to always have control of everything that's going on and always have an idea of what's wrong. Do you you say that tongue
2: in cheek? Do you say that tongue or have you found it actually like when you're when you text that, hey, your clothes are dry? No, I
1: actually get a text that says my clothes. No, no, no are I'm dry. sorry. Did
2: do you actually find that helpful oh. though? I, I, like it, I, I do
1: find it helpful okay, unfortunately, okay. I do. And what's really interesting is that my dryer clogged up a sock, a baby sock, got sucked into it and ended up in the it ended up outside, and my clothes weren't getting dry. And my dryer did a self-diagnosis, and it sent me a text <laughs> and a very passive aggressive email. Um, about cleaning out my air (laughs) ducts. And and so it was just, it was amazing at what I was now being controlled by my appliance rather than me controlling the appliance. So maybe what's going to happen is we're all going to go back to these vintage, vintage appliances when we finally run out of lithium, but everything, everything is controlled.
0: My grandfather is 101 years old. And when he was 95, his, uh, Maytag, uh, washer went on the fritz and he called Maytag and they said, you know, Oh, you know, uh, give me the, the, the model number. And he read off the model number and the woman was like, this is not in the book. (laughs) And then she goes, how old is this? And he goes, well, I built this house in 1956 and I think we probably got it in 1957 and that is why it wasn't in the book yeah.
2: but that 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 had worked flawlessly <laughs> the functional obsolescence yeah. of of modern technology um,
1: and this is designed to be obsolete yeah. in 10 years my television is designed to be obsolete my my washer dryer is designed to be obsolete um when i moved into a previous house in chicago we had a a 1950s um, refrigerator in the basement and it was still in working condition still got cold was wonderful made out of heavy metals it sucked the absolute heck out of my um out of my uh, electric bill like it was outrageous how much money i was paying to run this refrigerator um but it, it still works but you know my fridge is like six six years old and i'm like this sucks now so i, I, don't, I don't one of know.
2: the one of the best. uh Twitter handles to follow are these guys that, uh, the men and women that show up and they're like, why is my washing machine downloading, uh, you know, a 100 megabytes of information, you know, and, and they're trying to figure out like, why is my appliance the largest user of down, you know, from from the internet? And, and so, it, and everybody trying to diagnose why, you know, are they, you know, Bitcoin mining, you know, is and LG.
1: Somebody's Bitcoin mining yeah.
2: on your LG. Is right LG, there. yeah, LG somebody's Bitcoining on that or so I am
0: I am old enough to remember the entire life cycle several life cycles of Nvidia hype. Mm-hmm. I am old enough that when I was when I was a teenager Nvidia made the best graphics cards yeah, that if you absolutely. wanted to run your video games you wanted to get those. I was old enough to remember then all of the gamers complaining with all of, from all of the Bitcoin miners buying up the Nvidia dra- graphics cards and yeah. driving up the price to mine Bitcoin, and now we have all these massive AI deployments mm-hmm. of these chips to, you know, basically, you know, we all have, you know, I have fun with uh, with AI on my own time, and you know, ask it, you know, to construct recipes or write poems or. You know, do all sorts of uh, sorts of fun things. Answer you know questions about different topics. It's better than Google at this point. I honestly think that if you're if you're looking for information, you know, always buy or beware. Always best to verify these things. But it takes a tremendous amount of computational power for them to generate those recipes for me, those poems for me, those answer my various queries about you know remote Chinese provinces and this is, this is part of what's driving this. This is, this is what's driving this and so we have these ubiquity of chips and appliances. What do we make of this perspective sort of AI future? And and what that holds. Are we do we do we have the same upside downside diagnosis we have with the appliances? Maybe, you know, we're getting the tax, but then, you know, six years old, it starts to feel ancient. Um, We're not in that Maytag, that that 1956 Maytag dryer environment anymore. Mm -hmm. Will we one day be pining for Google searches like 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 we had in the old days?
1: I think it's all connected. Because I have a Roomba that operates on AI. it has a certain extent of AI. And it is the stupidest thing I have ever purchased in my life. It does not do what it's supposed to do. So right now, like the, the early era of AI appliances, but it is going to replace me as a homemaker, right? Because at some point, my AI vacuum is going to know that it's Tuesday and it's time to vacuum. And my AI fridge is going to keep, I'm sorry about the screaming children. Uh, is going to keep a record of everything that I purchase by volume and by weight. And it's going to tell me when my eggs are out. And it's going to tell me that I can um replace this and replace that. And it's going to automatically text Kroger. And Kroger is going to deliver it right to my front doorstep. And I'm not going to need to do anything anymore. So there's going to be, a I think, a similar to the way that we act about our washers and dryers and, and things like that. There's going to be a sort of upside downside, right? Because, yeah, my fridge is going to control everything, but also it is probably going to develop sentience and attack me at some point. So I think it's, you know, upside downside.
2: So there's there's a great book called More Work for Mother by Susan Wise Cohen, um, and she outlined how, and so this argument is immemorial. Like when, when washing machines in the 50s and 60s came out, you know, she is a sociologist, brilliant sociologist, and she's kind of written one of the main histories of the Appliance Revolution, mm-hmm. and again, the, the book, Evocative, More Work for Mother. The, the more, you know, uh, sh- and she showed the cultural changes that when you have efficiencies in one area, they change culturally how you look and work in other areas. And it it, I don't, I personally don't believe that it, you know all the efficiency arguments. They just create more work. I mean, if you have to download, if you look at your phone and you have fifteen different apps, you know, based on LG, based you know, everyone has their own. It, it causes more administrative work, more time than you know to manage. Um, I mean, Jensen Huang in in that interview last week, he said when he he was kind of making. Um, Light of the seven trillion number because, from NVIDIA's standpoint, right now they have a trillion dollars worth of installed data centers right now. And he said within four years we'll have two trillion. So he goes in the most aggressive way. We're going to double that to two trillion. So seven, like he's like they're going. What I mean, they're envisioning buying all the GPUs in all the world every. You know, he's like it's. It's just not going to happen. But if you think of just doubling what we see now in four years for AI investment, back to your original yeah. question, it, we are going to see massive uh, changes in some things that are uh, the, the technological. Um, engagements that we have on a day-to-day basis are going to fundamentally change.
1: And it trickles down too. So what you you need to know changes. So all of this institutional knowledge that we have about something like homemaking changes the further forward we go. And so it becomes an administrative duty. It becomes something that involves coding. It becomes something that involves STEM. You're going to need some sort of science and technology understanding in order to run your own home at some point. Or you're going to be like me and have a midlife crisis and go back to growing your own food and owning some chickens. And um, you're going to try to get rid of it. And then that becomes extremely expensive because you're disrupting (laughs) the supply chain management. But it becomes, homemaking goes from a hands-on profession to an administrative profession. And so that happens you know, across the board. You can't be a mechanic any longer. You have to have some sort of technical knowledge of computers and chips. You can't be HVAC any longer. You have to have an institutional knowledge of computers and chips and smart, smart thermostats. Um, the person who comes to fix my washing machine comes with a laptop. They don't necessarily come with tools and it plugs in the laptop and the computer tells it what's wrong. So it it just changes, it trickles down to everything, and then that becomes a a change in how we teach our children. It becomes a change in how we manage our everyday lives. What we what we do when we wake up in the morning. So it is a really interesting cultural impact as well.
0: So th- there are there are all sorts of interesting. Cultural and psychological impacts to this that work themselves down all the way to the individual level. There's an essay that Alex Tabarrok wrote, I think, last year called "The Harried Ouija Classes." Uh, that's that's very good on this. That we'll include in the show notes. But now I wanna I wanna transition, and and by means of transition, I'm going to say repent. For the end of the program is at hand. This call to repentance is continual in the life of the Christian, but most of the world's Christians have set aside this season, the Lenten season, to give it a particular emphasis. It began on Ash Wednesday. This is going to continue towards Easter, towards the resurrection. And um, what we're seeing in, you know, throughout the world is we've got two sort of concurrent things going on. On the one hand... We're starting to see in America secularization that, for a long time, was delayed in America as opposed to Western Europe. But we're starting to see increasing secularization. But we're also starting to see increasing sort of ecumenical participation in Lent from Christians across traditions. You know, uh, you know, uh, Lutherans and Catholics and Orthodox have always celebrated Lent. Some folks. Uh, who come from Reformed theological traditions haven't always, but we're seeing more of that. You see it a lot in American evangelicalism today. You see a lot of you know Christianity Today magazine will will publish a, a Lenten devotional, and I'm I'm fascinated by this. And um and and Dan is Dan is our resident Protestant, <laughs> and I thought maybe we'll begin our Lenten dis- discussion by just sort of unpacking. You know what he what what you see in that world, and uh, and if it's if it's is it is it encouraging? Are there are there are there great are there better or lesser executions of this? Mm-hmm. What's your perspective?
2: Yeah, I, I'm by no means an expert on that, but you have seen, especially in the last decade or so, more Protestants embracing this idea of Lent. Um, you know, uh, the church I attend. And uh, I'm a, a ruling elder at a PCA church. Yeah. So, you know, some in the past would be, con- you know, against this idea of Lent. But we, we, um, we change our service, how we do it. It's a very liturgical service, but then um, we incorporate um, the Lord's Supper every week now. Normally we did it the first uh, Sunday of the month, but we do it every week. We have a, a re-understanding of this idea of what it means to have repentance leading to Easter in this Lenten season. Um, they're, they're, I mean, really, there's universities. I mean, Biola University in Southern California, they have a Center for Christianity, Culture, and the Arts, and they release a daily Lenten email with music and poetry cultivated from history and and uh, a devotional written connected to scripture. And so you have these evangelical organizations, um, like you already mentioned, Christian Today and others, really coming behind and showing that Protestants can engage and maybe should engage, but maybe uh, untethering it from some of maybe the the I don't know lack of a better term, papal authorities of the past or the 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 demands like you know, fish on Fridays, etc. You know that it, it's not it's more individual than top down.
0: Yeah. And and fish on Fridays, I have I have mixed feelings of. I I always go to fish fries. Eric Cohn coordinates uh, a group of us here at Acton that hit up all of the fish fries <laughs> in the Diocese of Grand Rapids here. Um, but I don't feel like I'm fasting when I'm doing that. Like it's a lot of fish and it's a lot of fries and the coleslaw is delicious. And all of these things are great. And this is great for community, but sometimes those things can bring you away from the spirit of repentance. It's, it's.
1: I I am allergic to shellfish, so I can't eat shrimp or like any of the cheap sort of Lenten meals. Right. So I can't go to like the drive-thru and get the shrimp taco from Taco Bell. So I end up actually eating better during <laughs> too many days of the year because we're, we're cooking um the tuna noodle casserole was an exception that was in my sub stack this week but um
0: amazing sushi. recipe
1: <laughs> sushi I eat indian like we had a go fish curry and chana masala we'll look for you know various vegan recipes that are just like these delicious things that i would not normally cook um it, I lose a sense of sacrifice and Lynch uh, because I, I really can't tolerate the um, the shrimp cocktails, but I do love the fish fries. But those actually, what's really neat about the fish fries is that is a sense of community that we don't normally have. Um, and I think the idea of maybe not suffering really, unless you're, can, your Knights of Columbus are really terrible at frying fish and they are not in the South, fish fries here are amazing. Um you do get that sense of community and taking part in something that's a little bit bigger than you. And that is really nice.
0: No, it's absolutely a huge community builder. Um, and it's wonderful. You see these in, in Grand Rapids, you see these, I'm the, the last one that oftentimes what we do will, we'll either meet or sometimes Eric will arrange uh, either either himself or to have his gracious wife and children pick up fish for us because sometimes the lines are just oh, like huge, yeah. out the door, and it's and 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 people are are having a great time at church, which is good. Like people should have a great time at church, and they should have a great time with their church community. But you do get you do get you get all all over the place. You get I I saw. I saw you know, there are uh our uh, uh Anthony Sacramento, uh the editor of our Religion and Liberty magazine, mentioned to me that he uh just outside of his 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 home there were um a couple of Protestant clergy uh clergy people uh imposing ashes like in a drive through setting where it like was not part of, you know, a liturgical renewal that's leading to reflection on ancient Christian tradition and and being and being but it's just like it's 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 get your ashes and go. Um which is which is a problem.
2: <laughs> it's American, baby. It's, no, it. Uh, and and I think you know a lot of this is sociological and cultural. If it's untethered from the his, you know, theological base. Um, I mean, there you know articles written and people commenting on people you know that are Protestant, Baptists, and others that are in the Eastern Bloc countries that would never. Do Lent mm-hmm. because they see it attached to the oppressive regimes of the Catholic or Orthodox. You know this this angle of which they emerged out of, or have you know they, they just wouldn't participate. And and so there's there's a political angle, a cultural angle. And in America, I think uh, a lot of people are returning to realizing we just joked about how our Internet of Things is connecting. You know, like the uh, the. The urgency of our lives seems to be accelerated, you know, by technology and other things. And a lot of people, I think, they're looking for ways to rest. And if you're in the Christian tradition and, or, or abstain or fast or, you know, and then making sure, I think, in my opinion, in, in, in our church, what we're trying to do is connect people to the theological reasons of why we do it. And um, trying to connect, you know, why is it important for repentance to be thinking about these for 40, you know, 53 days in this, um, these guided meditations through how to think about them. I mean, it's good, particularly for where we are in our moment culturally. Yeah. And whether it is because of uh, community-oriented. I mean, it's funny, when we first moved um, to Grand Rapids, a a good friend, we— My wife met a woman and and she found out I worked at Acton and that first – Spring we were here. Julie got invited to like all these fish fries, mm-hmm. and the first one, you know, just, they they started talking, and it just came out that Julie was we're, we're not Catholic. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, they're like, oh, you know, but you just came like Julie's like, yeah, who's going to turn down a yeah. good fish fry? You know, so it was definitely community building just from the very first year we were we were here in Grand Rapids.
1: It's funny to me because I do see like there's this sort of growth of people on Instagram putting the ashes on the forehead and and. I was kind of resentful of it at first. I was like, I got made fun of every year. You know, you would go anywhere. I would go to work and people would be like, you have schmutz on your forehead. What's going on there, right? Um, And now I see people, you know, getting these beautiful crosses so that they can do Instagram influences. And they're often Protestants, often evangelicals. They belong to sort of these mega churches. But at the same time, Catholicism has always brought back to that sense of repentance and thinking about how transitional you really are as a human. I was dust and to dust I shall return. Um, But also the implications of that, right? Your dust is stardust. I mean, dust is what the universe is made of. It connects us all. It is creation. Um, And then love, love transcends that dust. Love transcends that human condition. Jesus died To give us the ability to no longer have to see our end at our end. Um, And so, in a world where we're so connected, where we are so consumerist, where we are so, we see so much fulfillment in things, you know, perhaps it isn't a bad thing that other people are taking this Catholic tradition of suddenly seeing humanity as transitional, humanity as fading away and that there is more to life than just what we have on earth and that to me you know I, I i struggle with a little bit of that resentment like how dare you steal my culture my culture is not a costume right appropriation Beyonce <laughs> like <fiance> making a <laughs> making a country album right this dang this is my culture um but but you you do see the good parts of it too um the community the the long-term consequences for humanity maybe we all do need a little bit more of a reminder that this isn't forever and we do have something better to look forward to
0: so I, I kind of want to close by by maybe having each of us each, each of us give a turn about something it doesn't have to be something that you're giving up it could be something you're giving to giving your attention to that you don't you don't typically do um, that you're comfortable sharing with the, with, the, with the listeners Um uh, to sort of to sort of cultivate that 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 sense of detachment and repentance that we're trying to cultivate in Lent, what what are you what are you doing, Dan? You mentioned some of the stuff your your, your church is doing together. Um, what are some things that you or your family are doing that are a little different uh, in this Lenten season?
2: I think for us um, this particular season, it's not necessarily about giving up something like you know commonly you know sugar or chocolate or you know it's that. We're doing more of self-examination. What is our family? What are we doing? How is our life, our daily life engaged with our church, with our community, with our vocations differently as we see them? And trying to be more intentional, particularly in the family, of talking about as we self-examine where, where we are at and what has the work of Christ done for us so we may flourish in our particular vocation. So it's, it's more a, a self-reflection, a self-examination of how does my faith, this faith we call our own, as we work it out in our own lives, in our church, and then in our broader community, how, how are we thinking about it? And, and so it's more of that self-examination, self-reflection about what Christ has done for us. I think that's our, our focus this year, what we're trying to do in, in our family. Nice, Emily. How about you and yours?
1: So I gave up um, Amazon. <gasps> um, so this is this is kind of going back to the convenience. Every year at Lent, I give up um, online. Essentially, I do not shop online at Amazon, and I do not go in to Target or Walmart. So it, it is a way of saving myself money, but also like trying to get down to knowing exactly what I need and only buying the things that I need. Um, And I have a problem. I love Target. Target to me is like a vacation, right? I go in and I I'm alone and I can do this sort of stuff. Um, So getting back down to buying what I need um, every year at Lent. And I also get rid of, so we do this thing called 40 bags for 40 days And we fill 40 bags of stuff, whether it's trash or something to give to Goodwill or to give to our church ministries, Um, go through all of your drawers, like your junk drawers and get rid of stuff, your uh, cosmetics and get rid of things that are old. And it doesn't matter how big or small these bags are, they can be just like a little bag, a trash bag, they can be, you know, a massive bag, but we get rid of 40 bags worth of stuff. Um, My children do not like this. Um, (laughs) And for me, it's mostly about improving my prayer life. I have a hard time uh, making time for prayer. So anytime that I can get in, whether it's the litany of the hours um, or just praying with my kids, a decade of the rosary a day or whatever, it's trying to get everybody to do something during Lent.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. Um, One of the ways that I've been thinking through this this year is, um, is trying to get that spirit of prayerfulness more. And I thought, what's the simplest way I could do this? So I opened up the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I and I there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's a passage that I've always absolutely loved, and this is this is in the section on prayer in the catechism. The catechism is divided into various sections. Um, in this, in the section on prayer, there's there's a section on sort of repetition of the holy name, and this is this is number uh, for those of you who have catechisms at home. This is number twenty six sixty six, and it reads uh, the call to repentance. Uh, or my notes, sorry. It reads quote. But the one name that contains everything is the one that the Son of God received at his incarnation, Jesus. The divine name may not be spoken by human lips, but by assuming our humanity, the word of God hands it over to us, and we can invoke it. Jesus, God saves. The name Jesus contains all, God and man and the whole economy of creation and salvation. To pray Jesus is to invoke him and to call him within us. His name is the only one that contains the presence it signifies. Jesus, the risen one, and whoever invokes the name of Jesus is welcoming the Son of God who loved him and who gave himself up for him and that 's where where my attention you know and uh, you know our attention goes so many places these days and and bringing it bringing it back to the holy Name is is what i 'm trying to do this Lent. Let's call it a wrap here. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Emily. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We'll see you next week.